Hey y'all, and welcome to another edition of Southern Fried Spooky, the podcast home of all things Southern Spooky, and today, some favorite oddities. Mm. I'm Carolina Girl Heather. And I'm Florida Man Tony. <laughs> we definitely like to ask you to join our Facebook family and give us some likes. Mm-hmm. We don't like each other, so we're kidding. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Also, if you enjoy our tales and discussions, please leave us some five-star reviews on your podcast platform. Also, yep. yet another also, mm-hmm. we've just started a Patreon. Also, also. Also, also. <laughs> also to the second power, I guess. <laughs> Patreon! Love your support. Yep. That thing. We hope our topics are chilly enough to help tame the heat of this summer. So today, we're mm-hmm. discussing some human exhibits of the old-time freak show. Mm-hmm. And the ones we're highlighting today were born elsewhere, but retired to the Carolinas. I guess that still counts as Southern, right? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, back in the day, mm-hmm. let's say, the days of the, quote, proper freak shows in their original form are well past. Yeah. I remember sideshows when I was growing up, going to the state fair, but I don't think they were quite the way they used to be. Today, the sideshow has created and curated freaks, such as tattooed people, fire performers, stunts, yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff like that. But Not, once upon not t- muggles. <laughs> <laughs> but once upon a time, people who were born with curious physical disabilities were considered freaks. And we can argue whether they were exploited or if they used their situations to their advantage. But See so- the greatest showman. <laughs> right? Yeah. Again, kind of both. But they, some of them made some serious money doing this. Oh, absolutely. And I understand quite a few of them were kind of happy about that. Mm -hmm. Among these were conjoined twins. So, at some point, I hope to cover, weirdly, we have a lot of them. Daisy and Violet Hilton, they were buried in Charlotte, North Carolina. They're the ones who were featured in the film, Freaks. Yeah. And there is also Millie and Christine McCoy of North Carolina. Yeah, also conjoined, and weren't they of color? Indeed they were. Yeah. Um, Given the existence of, like, x-rays, MRIs, and, and, like, different kind of scanning technologies, conjoined twins are, like, frequently examined at birth and separated. So, I mean, even if they are born, most conjoined twins are just conjoined, like, by skin. Yeah, something that's easily dealt with. Yeah, and, you know... A lot of it, separation's not possible, and sometimes it comes as a loss to the separated individuals. Sometimes they may have to kill one of the twins to save the other one's life. That's rude. Yeah. Or it could be, I've heard of some where there were like, what is it, that they were, they shared three legs and they both ended up with one because the one in the middle was couldn't be divided. Yeah, yeah. But back before we had MRIs and CAT scans, x-rays and all that. Oh, uh, this medical tomfoolery. Yeah. Medical community, they just didn't separate them. They were like, okay, we don't know what's connected. We're not going to separate them. And we're talking (sighs) x-rays and stuff, like maybe 1940s, 1950s. And even those, they pretty much only show bones. Yeah, they. and this is before barium, which you drink. If you've ever had barium, it tastes like chalk. Lovely. Yeah, and then they hit you with an x-ray, and wherever the barium goes, it lights up. Interestingly, that's how they look at your heart. You drink barium, it goes into your blood system, they scan your heart, and they can see all all the little veinies. <laughs> yep. I'm sorry, you said veinies. That was adorable. <laughs> but no, they really didn't separate them because, you know, they could share organs, could share blood vessels. I mean, you never really knew what. But today, our subjects often inquired about separation, but were repeatedly told that it could be fatal. I think that would dissuade me. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Inherently, any surgery can be fatal. Well, true. But sometimes the risks are greater than others. And, of course, back in where we're talking, death by infection was probably a huge thing up until sort of recently in in greater history. So, anyway, if you haven't guessed who we're talking about, we're talking about Chang and Aang Bunker. They were the original Siamese twins. Now, they were from Siam. They were Siam... Siamese American conjoined twin brothers and I remember growing up that was actually the term we used Siamese twins which was used just universally for conjoined twins I think I didn't actually learn the phrase conjoined until kind of recently well yeah I think they I think I think because of them it was coined Siamese twins Siam also where we get Siamese cats but that's completely unrelated is now Thailand yes and they were joined more or less at the sternum Mm -hmm. by just this like ligament this band 
and autopsies later determined that they only shared a liver and little else. So technically, they could have been separated yeah, because, because if they could have survived, you know, any kind of infection. Well, uh, another thing is, especially with them only sharing a liver, that's the one that regenerates itself. Right? Well, it can, but you can live with half a liver. If part of your liver is having a problem functioning, they can just go in and cut the dead part out. Oh, nice! And then reattach it, and it functions properly. But could they so do that back then? I don't know. When was this? 1800s? Um, they lived from 1811 to eighteen. Yeah, so probably not back then. That's, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, nowadays it could easily be handled, like, you know, through just, I don't want to say a minor surgery, but <laughs> surgery nonetheless. Nip and tuck, as yes. it were. So their mother, Nock, in OK, reportedly said that their birth was no more difficult than that of her other children, which I cannot imagine. They only had one, and that was enough. You know, it's usually said that women who give birth multiple times just find it easier. They just go, OK, you know what? <laughs> Done. <laughs> How delicate. Yeah. Now, their exact date of birth and the details of their early lives are unclear, but earliest reports assign them the birth month of May in 1811. Okay. And their village, where they were born, is called Meklong, yep. which is today's, I, I'm not really good with Thai pronunciation, I have no idea, Samut Songkram? I don't okay. know. But in the old town of Meklong, yeah. uh, there's a statue in the town that commemorates them. You're saying that with a French accent? I say everything with a French accent. Yeah, okay. You should hear me teach Spanish. I wasn't great at it. I sounded French. <laughs> Their father was apparently a fisherman of Chinese descent, but he died when they were pretty young. Because there was a smallpox epidemic that ran through the area around about 1819. Now, despite being joined across the sternum, which I think would be awkward, yeah. they were still kind of rambunctious kids. They would run and play and... And their mother raised them kind of like just normal people. Did not make a big deal about their peculiar condition. Indeed. Now, there was a Scottish merchant named Robert Hunter who's credited for their, hear the quotation marks, discovery. As in, first time anyone European noticed. Yeah. <laughs> now, he was a, a like a trusted trade, or trade associate of the Siamese government and was afforded freedoms. You know, like they trusted him so he could get away with a little bit more. As in, in this case, they just allowed him to wander around, yeah. I guess. In 1824, Hunter reported first meeting the twins on a fishing boat in the Minan River. I should say you say that with a Navajo accent, but I don't know what that sounds like. <laughs> uh, he spotted the twins swimming at dusk, and he mistook them for a strange animal. Okay. I'm enlightened of him. Yeah. <laughs> Though it probably does look rather strange. But quickly saw, like, of course, as most showmen did, mm -hmm. economic opportunity to bringing them to the West. He would spin tales of, like, the king of Siam who ordered the brothers' deaths and had originally forbidden him to transport them out of the country. But in truth, mm, they had an audience with the king. Nevertheless, it took, like, five years for Hunter to successfully move them out of Siam. I can only imagine. In my mind... For that amount of time, I can only imagine that it's like bureaucracy and red tape. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sign this form. Now sign it again. You have to learn the Siamese language to write this properly. Yes, indeed. Now, Chang and Eng were 17 years old when they traveled to the U.S. with backup. Yeah. Hunter headed to the United States with the twins in the summer of 1829. Mm-hmm. Hunter and an American sea captain, who I assume is the one that they traveled with, Abel Coffin, doesn't wow. sound creepy. Wow! <laughs> you like, imagine meeting that that guy at a bar. It's like, yeah, we're going to take you to our captain. His name's Abel Coffin. I'm just thinking for the biblically minded, if he was Cain Coffin, that would be slightly worse. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Hunter and Coffin, neither of those sound really pleasant, I suppose. Indeed. Signed a contract with the brothers that stipulated their tour would last for five years. Chang and Ang. Thank you. We're 17 when they traveled to the U.S. with Hunter, Jaeger, Coffin, Kufin, and a crew of 18 men whose names and translations thereof we don't know. <laughs> and a scientist Bob, translator. Sam, John, Samuel too. No. There's probably at least a James. <laughs> they arrived in Boston mm -hmm. on August 16th, 1829, and the next day the Boston Patriot announced the twins will, quote, probably be exhibited to the public, which, of course, was the whole point. And, of course, they were soon inspected by physicians because... You know. <laughs> well, back then they didn't have a lot. They had to make sure that they weren't carrying any 
you know, exotic diseases. Yeah, I hear the quotes there. And also yeah. probably to make sure that this was legit. Oh, yeah. Um, Chang and Ang attracted the attention of one Joseph Skye, I think, S-K-E-Y, mm-hmm. a doctor of the British Army who was staying in Boston. The doctor gained permission from Hunter and Coffin to conduct a few simple experiments on the twins and examine their physiology and motor responses. It does not say whether he gained... The twins' permission. Exactly. Of course not. Sky performed his examination multiple times by, get this, entering the twins' room at night and touching one of the twins to awaken them. He observed that touching one of them caused both to awaken at the same time. Now, what if someone came and did that to you multiple times? Wouldn't you just love that? Well, I'd probably end up beating the crap out of them first, but, you know, they, they touched me before coffee. They, they It's their fault. Yeah, I've learned not to do that. John Warren, a professor of anatomy and surgery at Harvard Medical School in Boston, also examined Chang and Aang, and Warren observed that the twins' heartbeats and respiration were synchronized, and that they shared the same habits and tastes. Though, I suppose partly that is because they kind of have to do the well, same thing. also, isn't that the majority of the case with most twins? Not conjoined twins, but just regular twins? I don't know. I know that often they're very similar, because, like, genetically they're the same person, but they have their own personalities. Mm-hmm. Warren published a paper in which he confirmed that the twins were conjoined, and that they moved in harmony rather than pulling on each other by the time they're 17. They actually were, figured yeah, it out. <laughs> I, I think you would figure it out. Yeah, I've seen some other twins who are conjoined in really odd ways, like modern era twins that yeah. couldn't be separated, and it looks weird, but they figured out how to get along pretty well. Mm-hmm. Warren was also among the first to note that Chang and Eng had distinct personalities and different characteristics. Yay, they're separate people, but joined. Okay, That no, would be like taking a belt and wrapping it around your waist and then wrapping it around my waist and being like, oh my god, they have different personalities. I'm sorry, I'm just thinking about that. Um, I'm going to move on now. <laughs> but kind of related, during the tours... At one point, they it was announced that the twins were planning to come to France in 1831. Okay. Now, think about this for a moment. The French authorities were so afraid of the effect of the now 20-year-old men would have on France's women, and this is France, that they were banned entrance into the country. The prospect, this is a quote, the prospect of the twins engaging in sexual relations with women disturbs the sensibilities. Their biographer, Joseph Orser, writes, Concerns existed about the impact that the twins' conjoinedness might have on women of childbearing age. What does that mean? That means they think that women who are in a delicate condition could see them and take fright. Because they used to think that anything women saw would affect the development of their child. Uh, That's stupid. It's 1800s. Yeah. Also, they thought that People just looking at them were wondering how do they have intimate relations and it would lead down a dark rabbit hole of naughty thoughts. Uh, Pillow does wonders. So after touring some in the U.S., they toured you know major cities in Brit- in the British Isles. But by the time they had returned to New York in March of 1831, the twins had gained some skill in English language, like reading, writing, speaking. Um, newspapers reported they had or they had earned great profits, and their promotional materials began to describe their customers as dignified to help. And I'm reading this, dignified. To help bring the richer and the more refined audiences. Well done. Their first manager... Well, okay, so does that mean, like, they suddenly became some kind of acquired taste? Perhaps. Uh, Oh, lovey, I see the twins are in town. Perhaps we should look down on the small people and go see them. We'll, you know, take in an evening at the salon and talk to these fascinating specimens. Indeed. So their first manager, James W. Hale, and every time I look at that, it looks like Whale, introduced (laughs) them... Yes. James Whale. Who has something to do with Frankenstein. That's totally Mm -hmm. different. Mm -hmm. Introduced them as the Siamese youths. They're getting older now. Yeah. Now, their usual admission price was 25 cents. Wait, 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 wait. In 1830-something. 30-something, so that would come out to be like 5, hold on, do the math, like 5.75, something like that? Approximately $6. Oh, okay, okay, okay so the equivalent. Okay, <laughs> you, you actually have it on the script. Good job. I do, well okay. done. Now, pamphlets and drawings featuring the brothers were also for sale. So, you know, were this the modern day, they'd have t-shirts and bumper stickers, right? (laughs) Buy the merch! Yes! (laughs) They had their own merchandise. Yes. So the early performances, the twins performed physical feats, such as running, swimming. I don't know what kind of stage has a pool, but somersaults, you know, acrobatic stuff. And 
Other performances included watching them play checkers and dueling parlor tricks. Now, initially, in this early time, an emphasis was placed on their, quote, exotic appearance. They wore pigtails and dressed in oriental clothing. Quotation marks. Indeed. And you can still see pictures of their younger days where they distinctly have that sort of almost caricature Asian look. Oh, yeah. I'm suddenly reminded of, like, the Chinese caricature in, like, when Superman's fighting Mao. (laughs) I mean, just like the very racist, like you look at it and go, yeah, that's Adolf Hitler, screw him, but damn, that's racist. (laughs) (laughs) So in the summer of 1831, the twins became entangled in a violent episode uh, that resulted in, like, bad publicity. And, you know, talking about celebrities and violent episodes. (laughs) Keep going, keep going. (laughs) Resist, you can do it. Hale took the twins on a hunting excursion in Linfield, Massachusetts. While hunting, they thought they were being taunted and harassed by a group of local men who had approached them. A fight broke out. The following day, one of the men pressed charges, alleging that the twins were at fault. A special court was convened, and the brothers were arrested for disturbing the peace and paid a bond for good behavior. So yes, they're the foreign ones, therefore they were the bad guys. Oh, of course. Now, the Salem Mercury portrayed the twins as the victims of the Linfield incident. I'm just thinking now, in a physical fight, can you imagine fighting an individual that basically has four arms? Now, uh, agreed. Like, even as an ex-bouncer, I wouldn't pull that crap. (laughs) Two weeks later, check this name, Elbridge Jerry, one of the participants in the skirmish, published a letter titled, To the Public, saying that the twins had provoked the violence, Manager Hale was angered that the twins had gotten into a situation in which their public image was being tarnished. So he resigned, Mm -hmm. as one does. I guess so. In September, and was replaced by a friend of his, Charles Harris, whom he coached and taught how to get around, you know, do all the publicity stuff. I mean, I guess you would have sort of a successor or understudy when it came to stuff like that. Indeed. An intern. <laughs> yeah, an intern, exactly. So the the twins were soon involved in another conflict. They just can't get a break. They can't they? <laughs> get a break. Uh, during a performance in Alabama. In Alabama. Are we surprised? Not really. Yeah. A surgeon in the audience asked to conduct a close examination of the, the ligature that connected the twins. That they, seems invasive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does seem a little invasive. They refused, having not, you know, permitted close inspection for more than, like, two years. I guess they were just tired of people poking and prodding at them. Well, probably, and they were thoroughly examined early on, so, yeah, yeah I think it's... Every, they're pretty well recorded as, yes, this is real, but this one doctor is like, I want to look. I yeah. want to poke it with a stick. So, of <laughs> course, him, the doctor, getting a little bit angry, he said, quote, you are all a set of imposters and pickpockets, end quote. Them's fighting words. Right. Disorder erupted as the guests threw objects across the room. Sounds like an audience it, that we would have in modern times. Right. Twins fled, and later, because they probably were the first ones to disturb the peace, paid a good behavior bond as, like, an order by the magistrate. So, so they it seems to... like back in this time, if you're naughty, you pay a fine, and you can say you're back on good behavior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, didn't mean to do it. Here's a couple dollars. So by around January of 1831, which was a very busy year for them, it seems, right. relations between, or rather the relationships between the twins and the Coffins started to show some strain. Mm. Susan Coffin, uh, Mrs. Susan Coffin, upset them. In one instance, Mrs. Coffin refused the twins an additional $3 per week, which I guess back then was kind of a lot, Yeah. to feed their horse. And I'm trying to imagine how they would ride a horse. Not sure. Side saddle. I guess. A refusal the twins compared to clipping a bird's wings and saying, Now you may fly if you wish. Probably not with that tone of voice. I don't yeah. know. And so Chang and Ning then started asking Harris, their other that other partner, yeah. to send letters pleading their case. Abel, not Cain, Coffin, left for Asia in late 1831 and planned to return in January 1832. Can you imagine just going on a trip and being like, I'll be back in a few months, bye. I've done it before. Okay, yeah, that's true. I would not be able to do that. (laughs) After January came and went, the twins' relationship with Mrs. Coffin broke down completely, and they hoped to be free from the Coffins by their 21st birthday, which would be May of 1832, as once promised. They began to also doubt the Coffins' management integrity. Okay. For example, Mrs. Coffin had encouraged them to perform when they were sick. Okay. Sounds 
Again, very modern. Yeah. During one trip, the Coffins had paid full fare for themselves, which means they get, like, first class, but booked the twins into steerage and listed them as servants, and then lied to them when the twins asked them about it. And the twins learned that Mrs. Coffin was willing to pay a higher wage for only a certain attendant, but not the one that the twins preferred. So they jointly came to believe that Mrs. Coffin was cheating them. I mean, if... I mean, it does sound What like I just read is true. It sounds like she was cheating them. So it seems that Abel Coffin had returned to Massachusetts in 1832, like he said. But in July. But in July, like, yeah. A little late. Yeah. By many uh, months. About a couple of months, yeah. His poor wife. <laughs> he discovered that Chang and Ang were missing. Oops. Of course, yeah. Did he check under the couch cushions? I mean, where do you... <laughs> I mean, oops, misplaced him. Sorry. <laughs> it was like apparently he tr- he tracked down the brothers in Bath, New York. At of least course. they were clean. Yeah, <laughs> not that kind of Bath. Sorry. Hale later said that Coffin told him that he had met the twins whoring, gaming, and drinking. Sounds like they're having a good time. And gave Changang the damnedest thrashing they ever had in their lives. End quote. On the twins' desertion, Coffin simply wrote to his wife as follows: "We have had much talk. Sorry, I apparently can't." read the way they were writing. (laughs) We've had much talk. They seem to feel themselves quite free from me. So now, the twins exclusively use the stage name, quote, the Siamese twins, which we still call them today somewhat. They changed some elements of their performance. Okay. They did less tumbling and and acrobatics, and they answered audience questions. They did Q&A, basically. Yeah. Audience questions while sitting in a formal parlor setting. They wore more American-styled clothes, spoke English without the translator with their audience, and presented themselves as adult, well-educated men. They hunted game in their free time, and what had essentially been their indentured servitude had changed to freedom. They were in command of their act and hired their own staff. Mm-hmm. They semi-retired to Jefferson, North Carolina, in July Wait, of 1839. Where is Jefferson? You're asking. I don't know. I didn't look on the map. We should totally huh. do that. Yeah. As it is, we couldn't tell the audience members exactly where it is either. It's yeah. Like, it's right here where I'm pointing. Yes. On the map. According to a family friend, their move to Wilkes County slash Jefferson, in the okay, it's the northwest of the state. Yeah. Allowed them to engage in chasing stag and catching trout to enjoy the recreation which they had desired to find far away from the hurrying crowds. Why do I feel End like? Quote. Why do I feel like chasing stag and catching trout is a euphemism? I suppose it could be, but. Because they say stag, I also envision them on the English countryside. Yeah, true. <laughs> I don't think we call them that here, do we? No, I don't think so. They're going deer hunting. Yeah, pretty much. In October of 1839, they purchased 150 acres. Jesus. That is a lot of land. For $300, which is the equivalent of about $7,600. Yeah, something like that. Which is still pretty cheap. Near the rural community of Trap Hill... In mountainous northeast Wilkes County. And they soon became well acquainted with the members of elite Wilkes Society, mm-hmm. including James W. Gwynn Jr., the county's superior court clerk. Charles Harris, their former manager, re- yeah. relocated with them, and he became the Trap Hill Postmaster. So he got to know everybody probably when they came to get their mail. I mean, you're the postmaster. You pretty you got to know a lot of things back then. One would imagine. Yeah. So they bought the land, and the same month that they got their land, the twins and Harris, who was Irish, yeah, or Scots Irish. I think it didn't say it was Scottish early. I think so. He's he's Celt. He's yeah. somewhat Celtic. He's Scots Irish of some sort. But they all became naturalized citizens. And Gwyn, who I just mentioned, mm-hmm. administered their oath of allegiance. Despite a pesky little federal law from 1790 restricting naturalization to free white persons, citizenship was a matter generally governed by local attitudes. Mm -hmm. As it was, yes. True. So a home was constructed in 1840. The brothers would buy food from Wilkes slaveholders and trade dry goods with their neighbors. Mm -hmm. Okay, now they themselves also bought enslaved persons. And hired several women as housekeepers. That could be fun. They were prosperous from touring, so they displayed their wealth with fancy homes and elegant decorations. As one does. As one does. I can't help but feel that if they were touring today, they'd have a really kick-butt bus, you know? Oh, <laughs> yeah. RV absolutely. out the wazoo. Absolutely. By the 1840s, their property was the third most valuable in the county. So the equivalent was like... A thousand dollars. It was valued at a thousand dollars, which would be like twenty-seven. Is it twenty-seven? I almost said twenty-six. Okay, so yeah, good at the math part. It was it was well valued. They they did well, and they event they settled. They planned to stop exhibiting for good, content to live there. 
You know, that stag and trout thing. Yeah, euphemisms abound. Indeed. And the Whig Party newspaper, Carolina Watchmen of Salisbury, called them genuine Whigs, and the... That's Whigs with an H. Whigs. Yeah, that's W-H-I-G-S. Whigs. And the Boston Transcript reported that they were happy as lords. Indeed. So here's a quote from the Raleigh Register. Okay. It is a phenomenon, because people love to hear me read. Yes. It is a phenomenon, (laughs) not perhaps to be witnessed again in this country, to see Asiatics transform to good American citizens, not only in language, but in feeling. They have lost every vestige of their native tongue. I, I don't think they forgot it all. Yeah. In fact, they speak English fluently and almost without foreign accent. A few words seem to be impractical, but they are chatty and communicative, and hence their perfection in our language. They are altogether American in feeling. End quote. This is April 13th, 1853. Just putting that in there. So, by late 1840s, uh, the twins spoke English very fluently. They had voted and had filed criminal charges against several white people. So, (laughs) go figure. Uh, they also adopted the surname Bunker. Interesting. And, yeah, and uh, it was in the honor of uh, of a woman who they had met in New York, and they really admired her. I so wonder what her I, first name was. I don't know. Edith? <laughs> Why'd I ask? Uh, so continued newspaper coverage established their place as national celebrities. I always want to refer to them as one person, and I don't know why. And they felt like they, themselves to be American. They have they-them pronouns. They do. They do. <laughs> Bunkers carved a unique place in, Amer- in America's perception of race. They were considered non-white, here's the quotation marks, but were afforded many privileges of white people, being like fairly wealthy southern slave owners with property rights. Makes sense. Yep. In 1840, mm-hmm. a profile of the twins in the Tennessee Mirror announced the twins' intentions to marry. I hope that would be someone else. Indeed, uh, many newspapers regularly joked about this, discouraging their marriage not just with objections over the twins' deformity, but also because of their race. Wow. One report of the time cites how, quote, all hell broke loose. A few men smashed through some of the windows at the girl's father's house, and uh, some of his neighbors threatened to burn his crops if he did not promise to control his daughters. Nevertheless, on April 13, 1843, Baptist preacher Colby Sparks officiated the weddings between Eng and Sarah Yates and between Chang and Adelaide Yates. So the two brothers married two sisters. Very convenient. Uh-huh. I don't think the sisters were twins, but they were sisters. Yeah. And at first, the Bunkers and their wives lived in the same house and shared a reinforced bed built for four people. Wow, that's a big bed. That's a lot of intimacy. Yep. In a post titled, Marriage Extraordinaire, Mm -hmm. wished for the marriages to be as happy as it will be close. Hmm. Another paper inquired as to whether the women ought to be indicted for marrying a quadruped. Wow, really? (laughs) There are issues with other conjoined twins marrying. I know that it would sometimes come up as polygamy. Mm -hmm. The twins would prominently feature their marriages when they went back on tour later in life. Now, each wife gave birth in 1844. While no details survived about how the couples conducted their intimacy, it's worth noting that the brothers' first children were born six days apart and a later pair eight days apart. And they would go on to have an astounding 21 children. Whoa! 21 kids? So somebody had 10 and somebody had 11, I guess. Wow. I mean, they could have divided it up other ways, but um, that's a lot. So on March 1st, 1845... The Bunkers, uh, the twins, uh, and their respective wives, I guess. And huge enclave of children. Yes. Uh, oh, it, it, it's, Well, it wouldn't have been that big yet, no. but still. But they bought 650 acres of land in Surrey County. You know how big 650 acres is? 650 more plots the size of our yard. <laughs> yes. Imagine 650 square plots of our yard. And you know how big our yard is. Yes, so from front and back. So they had built a home at first for like part-time use. And it's about five miles away from Mount Airy. I've been there. So the twins amassed wealth during the 1840s and 1850s and lived in luxury as plantation owners. Sorry about that word. (laughs) In the 1850s, it was estimated that they had invested $10,000 in property in North Carolina. The equivalent of like 
2021. Uh, meanwhile, they had a merchant in New York who managed another $60,000 of importing, the equivalent of $1,900,000 in 2021, and they lived off the interest. They had some money. Sounds like they needed it, though. Yeah, yeah. But that is, they're very successful, all mm-hmm. considering. Oh, yeah, they absolutely were. As now, I, answer me a question. Were they a part of um, Barnum's? Okay. Yes, we'll get to that. They okay. were, um, but a little later in their life. And yes, if you see The Greatest Showman, there are a pair of conjoined twins who are obviously Asian. They don't have any lines, but yeah, we're but pretty they, sure they, they, But they were meant to be Changanang? I'm pretty sure they okay. were. Okay. Christian missionaries contacted their mother in mm-hmm. 1845, Four years before she died, she had not heard from them ever since they left, so she believed that they were dead. I mean, she hadn't seen them in 15 years, but she was informed they were alive and recently married. And wealthy. Oh, yes. (laughs) It does not say if she ever got to see them again. I I don't know. So for about a decade, they split their time between Mount Airy Mm -hmm. and Trap Hill because their families had, well, grown quite large. Uh, Yeah. 21 kids. Well, at this point, by 1847, Adelaide had four, Sarah had three. They would maintain the Trap Hill residence through 1853, mm-hmm. and later their time was divided solely between two houses. It's like they had custody issues. For the next decades, the twins would alternate between which house they would use. Three days at one, three days at a time. The twin who owned the current house could elect to do whatever he wanted, while the brother complied and kept silent. So, <laughs> shotgun. <laughs> wow. Okay, so this weekend we're spending it at my house and I have shotgun rules. Basically. Wow. You'll do what I do and and like it. I wonder if they sort of intentionally did stuff they knew the twin didn't like. Oh, I mean, as brothers, one would figure they would. <laughs> I mean, just saying. Would you? Probably. <laughs> so, their plantations uh, produced wheat, rye, corn, oats, and potatoes. All kinds of stuff. And they raised cows, sheep, and pigs. So normal, like a normal, like massive farm. But they did not grow tobacco, which, I mean, many suggest that their plantation was run primarily to feed the family, which, I mean, after so many kids, I guess you need an entire farm to feed that size of a family. So it's not a commercial endeavor. It's just their yeah. private needs. And, like, well, their family their and... Their little victory garden was the whole thing. Well, their family and the their um, indentured servants... <laughs> They're enslaved peoples and anyone else working there. Yeah, but like never for commercial purposes, so I guess they just really didn't sell anything. The press characterized the bunkers' treatment of their enslaved workers as particularly harsh, though the twins decried accusations of cruelty and said that their wives supervised the slaves and raised money for their education. Interesting. So, you know, they were like, oh yeah, they're uh, obviously harsh owners. And they were like, no, we're giving them educations and stuff. Well, so. Considering their early life, I can't really imagine that they would be harsh. Uh, you know, They weren't entirely enslaved, but they were pretty close. I mean, yeah. They were definitely treated as chattel, I would say. So, though the bunkers were generally part of the region's aristocracy, mm-hmm. some of their practices set them apart. You know, they were raised Buddhist, and they had a whole different kind of lifestyle. Yeah. They were occasionally seen performing manual labor. Imagine that. Wait, the, the twins themselves? Yeah. Huh. Well, and, well, this kind of envision this. Their method of chopping wood was particularly effective because they would wield an axe with all four hands and would rapidly alternate turns swinging. They could probably cut down a... Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. A redwood with that. For real. They continued recreational hunting. They took up fishing, drinking, and several sports. Okay. Partial retirement ended up not suiting the bunkers, and they sought to resume touring... For what they called financial reasons, they said they needed to earn more money to support their seven children. They traveled back to New York in 1849 with five-year-old daughters, Catherine and Josephine. But the tour petered out owing to poor management and they returned to North Carolina. Advertisements had described them as the living Siamese twins, Chang-Ang, and their children. So I'm just, I'm really surprised on like how affluent these guys really were. Especially in, the, like, the 1800s. It is it, impressive. It, it's it's very impressive because, you know, people weren't treated properly back then. So, well, and that's the thing, though. If you do any kind of background on a lot of so-called freaks, 
if they went on tour, they made bank. Oh, they yeah, absolutely. They got a lot of money, which is good because medical advances being what they were, they often didn't have extraordinarily long lifespans. So yeah. I think they had to enjoy what they had. For real. In 1853, they conducted a successful year-long tour. Oof. Yeah. Again, like bringing their children, uh, Christopher and... Was it Catherine? She gets to go a lot. She really does. And they justified their tour by saying the motivation was to raise money to support their, by this point, 11 children's education. 11 children. No, thank you. So on the tour, Chang and Ang wore American suits, which I assume that they had to go to some specific tailor to actually get done. Well, keep in mind, back then, everybody did. Yeah, that's true. You know, there was nothing really off the rack ready to wear. You pretty much, everything was tailored. So that would not have been an issue. But they could go to a much finer tailor. Oh, absolutely. With that kind of money, yes. So they even spoke English about their marriage and family, marriages Indeed. and families, and they also all, uh, showed off their wit and political knowledge, which, I mean, these guys were evidently intelligent. Considering that they must have had to get their own education kind of in mm-hmm. their own way, yeah, they just sponged it up, I guess. Mm-hmm. So they appeared educated and polite, according to biographer Joseph Andrew Orser, and might have appeared as distinguished Southern family on display, except for the fact that no family of distinction would exhibit itself to the public. Indeed. Proper people just don't do that, you know. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. (laughs) Why would you ever do that? I mean, you know. Because they're fascinating. Yeah. (laughs) So, in early I was being facetious, by the way. Really? Yeah. October 1860. Here's Mm -hmm. what you wanted to know. They signed with the famed showman, P.T. Barnum, for a month and were exhibited in Barnum's American Museum in New York City. Wait, they only signed with him for a month? I don't know if it was extended, but let's Hmm. see. They performed for several distinguished guests, including the Prince of Wales. Which one? (laughs) Um, The one who was in there in 1816. Oh, okay. Okay, look it up. I don't know. Hmm. In 1868, they would briefly tour in the British Isles. Contrary to popular belief, Barnum did not create the Bunker's careers. Obviously, they're already they, well Yeah, they were already well established at this point. In fact, they were competitors in the entertainment business, and the twins had already become world famous from their own tours. Mm-hmm. And while not named, as I mentioned, yeah. there are a pair of young Asian conjoined twins in The Greatest Showman. Okay. Well, keep in mind, I only saw it the once when you showed it to me. Well, true. So There are a lot of, if you if you know your history of freaks, which I kind of do, you yeah. can sort of look at several of them and go, I know who that's supposed to be, yeah, I know who that yeah. is. A few are just for the show, but most of them are recognizable. Yeah. So they left New York City on November 12th, 1860, mm-hmm. and arrived in San Francisco, way on the other side of the country. On December 6th. Took them about a month to get there. Oof. I like getting places, but I don't like the actual traveling part. Yeah, well. Californians at the time were in the midst of... If we could only teleport. Right? (laughs) Well, probably to them it seemed fast. I don't know. Yeah. Well, Californians at the time were in the midst of figuring out how to deal with a recent influx of Chinese immigrants. Ooh. And the arrival of the bunkers, as well of two of Aang's sons, Patrick and Montgomery, was put in the spotlight. As usual, Chang and Aang were favorably received by audiences. They left California on February 11th, 1861, by which time seven states had seceded from the U.S., sparking the American Civil War. Kind of a dangerous time. The bunkers likely returned to their Mount Airy homes by April after gunfire had begun in South Carolina, but before North Carolina seceded on May 20th, I always say my, my little state's the one that started it all. Uh, well, I mean, in 1860, you know, you just read that, that on November 12th in 1860, they went to San Francisco. Indeed. Um, in California back then, there was, especially in 1860, there was this huge gold rush. Uh, with the railroads and, and whatnot. railroads and stuff like that. But what's really funny is they were hunting for gold and silver. They found cinnabar, yeah. which is what's used to make mercury now. Oh. So, yeah, like, while they... Would they have considered that valuable back then? Yes, absolutely. Oh, did they? Yes. Oh, your sense of history. I had no idea of that. Mm-hmm. Throughout the Civil War, the yeah. twins' conjoined state served in several metaphors. In July 1860, the Louisville Journal chided divisions of, in the Democratic Party by making the twins out to represent rival factions within the party. Split well, on. wouldn't that suck? Can you imagine right. having a conjoined twin, like, say you're a Democrat and that conjoined twin is a Republican? That could get annoying. 
think that I mean that could be like all out war right there. Well, and that's what newspapers and such were trying to make it out. They disagreed. They were, but that's not true. The bunkers were longtime supporters of the Whig Party, which I don't think we even know what that is anymore. <laughs> Does However, anybody really know what that is anymore? That sounds more British than anything. Yeah. And a neighbor wrote to the Fayetteville Observer that they are not now, and never have been, Democrats, which, keep in mind, those were different back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they say they never expect to be Democrats. This neighbor also said that in the 1860 election, both twins supported the Tennessean John Bell of the Constitutional Union Party. I don't think we have that anymore. No. A candidate popular in northwestern North Carolina whose platform included both support of slavery and of preservation of the Union. Wow. Yeah. People back then, I'm telling you. Well, you know, I'm sure in the future people will look back at, back at us and go, my God, did they know how wrong they were about right. X, Y, and Z? So, you know, many newspapers fictitiously wrote that Chang and Ang were um, at odds with each other on the issue of secession, which, like I was saying, that could lead to quite a personal struggle, I guess you could say. Well, we we both know that not all members of a family would agree on the Civil yeah. War, so, you know, yeah. it was a very divisive time. But apparently that's personifying fears of sensational violence. Um, according to Orser, uh, the United Brothers had become symbol of the American Union and promised it offered to its citizens. Orser added that a report of the conflict between, sorry, I'm reading, between <laughs> the bunkers. Orser added that reports of conflict between the bunkers did have some grain of truth. The brothers had legally divided their properties, lands, and slaves, which, I don't know, strikes me as weird, and had created separate wills, formalizing the divided way they had lived since marriage. Now, yes, how does that work? Do you just say, okay, fine, you know, now that we're attached, or since we're attached, I want to go to this lawyer and I want this done. I mean, like... I don't know. I guess they just didn't want everything to be completely merged, even though they're two... I mean, they are two separate people. They're just sort of stuck having to be with each other all the time. Apparently it was important enough to do. Yeah. By the time the Civil War ended in 1865, the twins' finances had declined, which was not surprising. They had lent money that was repaid in Confederate currency, which was not worth much. Which some guy, um, like three years ago, found like $60,000 in Confederate money buried in his yard. Oh, wow. It's worth about 85 cents, but still. But I'm sure <laughs> museum somewhere. Oh, like, yeah. Very excited over that. So they lost their money. Their slaves were emancipated. They decided to resume touring. Northern audiences at this point were not so receptive to the twins. They had been Confederate slaveholders. So during the tours, they sympathetically presented themselves as old men with many children who only reluctantly supported their state over country and who each had had a son injured in the war. One was injured and one captured, serving in the Confederate States Army. Newspapers disparagingly wrote that the twins had lost a considerable number of slaves of about the same color of themselves and suggested that the twins were taking advantage of their audiences. So Chang and A made a trip to Britain in, what was it, 1868, 1869, and they saw a physician chatting in their exposition. Uh, their last visit there had been over 30 years before. Chang's daughter, Nani. Or Nanny. That or was Nanny. not an unusual name. Yeah, that's right. Um, who had never before been far from home, and Ang's daughter, Kate, both were in their 20s, came on the trip. I'm wondering if Kate is Catherine. or I, w- I would assume so. But <laughs> is that the same girl? I mean, but, you know, 21 kids. Who knows? There may be some overlap there. And interesting that all of the names are absolutely American. Oh, absolutely. Or, I, I don't know, that whole Nani nanny thing. Again, that N-A-N-N-I-E. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it's not a Siamese or Thai name. Yeah. Not that I can imagine. So in 1870, Chang Eng and two sons, who are not mentioned, yeah. went to Germany and Russia. They wanted to explore Europe, um, but the developing Franco-Prussian War encouraged them to go back home. Oof, yeah. And on the ship back home, Chang's right side towards Eng became paralyzed because he had a stroke. Oh, no. So they were effectively retired, and Aang cared for Chang, which has got to be a little difficult. Yeah. The Bunker Estate in 1870 was worth $30,000 in total. Okay. Which is about $640,000. In 2021. Yeah. yeah. Two-thirds of which belonged to Chang. Now, I'm not sure why that is the way of it, but, you know, 
Now, here's some words I have a hard time saying, <laughs> which okay. is, for me, difficult. At birth, Chang and Eng were healthy Xiphopagus twins conducted at the sternum by mm-hmm. a flexible circular band of flesh and cartilage mm-hmm. about five inches long with a maximum circumference of nine inches. I know that's so, very exciting. About, I would say about the, the width of a softball. About that, I guess. Yeah. Their livers were connected mm-hmm. through the band, and only at the middle of the ligament did they share sensation. Now, that was just a little tidbit in there, mm-hmm. but the twins toured until they were over 60 years old, and they continued seeking opinions on surgical separation because they feared what would happen if one of them died. Well, yeah. Especially after that stroke. And most physicians who met with the twins recommended against surgery for separation. As was the medical technology at the time, it would have been a fatal p- procedure. The 1870s, still not good for medicine. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, I mean, obviously, currently, it could have probably been an outpatient thing. Um, Nowadays, I wouldn't say outpatient, but it would have been a hell of a lot more safe. Yeah, I suppose. I don't remember when it came about that infection was less of a problem, but I imagine, if nothing else, that's a big problem when they're dealing with surgery back then. I'd say around the 1930s is when, like, medicine started becoming, you know, more predominant. Back shortly after Doc Holliday died. Uh, it's usually war, of, you know, that yeah. brings about the medical and technological Exactly, advances. exactly. But, but you know, had, had he held on like three years, they would have had a cure for it, tuberculosis. Your favorite character. Uh, he's a real life person. No, I know, I know. He's sort of become a legend. Anyway, back yeah, to our Sorry, guys. but what, uh, what I was saying is in the 1930s, 1920s is about the time that you start seeing this grand medical advancement. This is true. Yeah. And all I can think of now is like one slip of the Liston knife and it yeah. could have been fine. Well, the Liston knife was actually developed for the Civil War. That's for amputees. I'm surprised they, well, it was. It, it would have been a risk, but I'm surprised they didn't try well, it. It was made for quick amputations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do Isn't love the Listerine. Isn't that also where we get Listerine? Yes, I believe so. As an antiseptic? Mm-hmm. Little helpful tidbits for today. Yep. So while Aang enjoyed good health toward the end of his life, mm-hmm. most of Chang's right side had become paralyzed in 1870 after his stroke. Yeah. And eventually his right leg needed to be kept in a sling. So from then on, Chang, becoming a heavy drinker, remained in poor health. That's got to be difficult. One of them's good and the other's not. Chang contracted bronchitis in January 1874. Which would kill somebody in the 1870s. And the family physician recommended that he stay indoors and warm. Mm -hmm. On January 15th, the bunkers traveled through cold weather to do their house change to Eng's house. Yep. Cheng seemed to have recovered somewhat by the next day, but at night was unable to breathe comfortably. On Cheng's urging, the brothers slept sitting upright on a chair in front of a fireplace. Eng was healthy physically, but weary from spending the past week with a seriously ill Cheng. Yeah. So he asked to move to their bed after hours of drifting in and out of sleep. Early in the morning, January 17th, one of Eng's sons checked on the sleeping twins. Uncle Cheng is dead, the boy reportedly said to Eng, who responded, then I'm going. Over the next hour, he suffered into Intense pain and distress, a cold sweat covering his body. The only notice he took of his dead twin was to move his body nearer to him. The family doctor was quickly sent for, but Aang soon died, reportedly just two hours after his brother's death. The Bunkers had the longest known lifespan, 62 years, Mm -hmm. of any conjoined twins in history until 2012, with their record was suppressed by Donnie and Ronnie Galleon, who Mm. were 1851 to 2020. No, 1951. 1951. I was about to say, 1851 to 2020? I'm bad at math. Held on. All right, you talk then. <laughs> okay. So, Aang was remembered as a caring supporter of his brother, especially during their final years when Chang developed severe illnesses. And, and alcoholism. Yeah, I was about to say, and, after, and alcoholism. After their deaths, their good friend, Jesse Franklin Graves, what a name, <laughs> recalled Aang's kindness was received with the warmest... Appreciation by Chang, which, I mean, it's your brother, of course. Disposition was very different from the morose ill nature so falsely ascribed to him by the press. I remember always reading that one of them was sort of crotchety, so maybe that's what they were saying. Their autopsy was performed by Surgeon William Pancoast of Philadelphia's Jefferson Medical College. I've been there. Have you met Mr. Pancoast? Uh, no, he was name. probably dead. Oh, but I have, I have, I have seen the uh, the medical college. Cool. 
I didn't go into it. We like we went by it, but it's pretty cool. Before the bunker's bodies were returned to North Carolina for burial in 1917, mm-hmm. they were moved to the cemetery at White Plains Baptist Church outside Mount Airy. Mm-hmm. Doctors took photographs of the connecting tissue and hired sculptor John Cassani to make a plaster cast of the twins. The bunker's fused livers are preserved in fluid and displayed in a clear jar along with the death cast in, I want to go here so badly, in Philadelphia's Mutter Mutter Museum Museum. as a permanent exhibition. A basement room of the Andy Griffith Museum contains an exhibit on the twins because that uh, Mount Airy is also... Mayberry. Mayberry, yeah. Yeah. Mount Airy is Mayberry. Andy Griffith was born there. Yep, I've heard that a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. The Circus World Museum houses life-size figures of the twins, mm-hmm. and the Southern Historical Collection of the University of North Carolina at a Chapel Hill keeps the bunker's personal papers. Now, I also think that there are wax. They made wax figures of them for the that big wax museum in New oh, York. Like Tussauds? Yeah, I believe so. Something I, like that. I don't know. I've not actually heard hmm. that. So could they have been separated? I kind of think at this point, yes. Okay. um, Not back then, obviously. I mean, I think if they had attempted it, they might have been okay, but they might not have Mm -hmm. been. The novelist Darren Strauss wrote, Their conjoined history was a confusion of legend, sideshow hyperbole, and editorial invention, even while they lived. Many works have fictionalized the Bunker's lives, often to symbolize cooperation or discord, notably in representing the Union and Confederacy during the Civil War. So that about wraps it up for the Siamese twins. does well we hope you've enjoyed the tale of their lives and maybe you didn't know all that about their rather lengthy history yeah like the list of knife and listerine <laughs> that wasn't intended but you know right yay improv so let us know what you think on our facebook page mm-hmm. or send us an email give us a few likes feel free to comment and leave us some stars on your podcast platform indeed which recently includes amazon and audible yep we're so excited about that and don't oh, forget yes. the patreon which we are still working on as always thank you for joining us where the tea is a little sweeter and the tales are a little creepier indeed i'm carolina girl heather and i'm florida man tony and we're not conjoined <laughs> i was gonna say while we're close we're yeah. not actually joined we're at the hip. not at joined at the hip but so, we are sometimes in each other's brains oh indeed yeah it's kind of scary well see you next time bye, bye y'all. y'all okay so i cannot imagine being stuck to somebody for that long 60 years i guess you would just get used to it like no there's no getting used to that <laughs> what if what if one of you had to use the bathroom the other one's like no i'm gonna hold it you think of the weirdest thing i just i would kill somebody <laughs>